Welcome back to the podcast channel and we have a very special exclusive interview for you this week. I'm Chris Bowers and with 2022 marking 50 years since the formation of the ATP, the Association of Tennis Professionals, I met with its very first president, Cliff Drysdale, to look back on how it all came about in the first place, including the events leading up to it, which go back to the mid-1960s and include the year zero point at which amateurs and professionals could finally play the same tournaments. Back then, Cliff Drysdale was a South African player in his early 30s who found himself having to deal with a range of people, including the chairman of Wimbledon, Herman David, and members of the tennis press who weren't best pleased when change was mooted. But I started by asking him to recall the final days of the amateur era. Those were the days when um, the professionals had their own little tour outside of the majors, were not allowed to play in the major championships. And for those of us th- that were, were left, which was the majority of players, obviously, um, it was a fun life because we used to travel from tournament to tournament, didn't make much money. And, uh, but we were, we were all brothers because we were in it together, so... We didn't have entourages, we didn't have masseurs, we didn't have uh, coaches. Actually, we really didn't even have coaches, it was astounding. Uh, that's how it was in those days, and then eventually that changed. But uh, we never, at least I never imagined that suddenly somebody was going to come out of the woodwork and make a move that turned the game around and turned it into the professional game that it is now. Because, I mean, looking back... Open tennis seems obvious, and yet at the time, these things aren't necessarily obvious. I was not thinking in those terms, and I was ready to call it quits because there was there was not enough uh, financial incentive to stay in the professional in in the tennis game uh, unless you know things did turn that way. But I wasn't expecting it to happen, and then suddenly, out of the blue, end of '67 comes uh, Dave Dixon. Lamar Hunt and they saw the future of tennis as being a lot brighter a lot more robust than it was then and they saw that tennis was really not being what it could be and wanted to to be a part of it wanted to engage the game and grow the game and they did Dave Dixon Lamar Hunt uh, Mike Davies lots of people around at the time person that gets a lot of credit for open tennis is Herman David for actually saying We've actually got to have this professional tournament at Wimbledon, which they held in late August '67. Do you think that broke the logjam? Of course it had something to do with it. In fact, it had a lot to do with it. When Wimbledon said they're going to go open, that was it. That's all she wrote. And, uh, but as you just said, it's sort of at that time, that was not on the cards, but it was when it was clear to the authorities, Herman David being one of the major ones, that um, the game was going to be better served by opening up. And so after it opened up, from April 68 onwards, we then had this sort of slightly odd period where the players were professional, but the administration of tennis was amateur. What do you remember about uh, the early days of uh, open tennis? Well, it was a mess because you had uh, some players were called uh, contract pros and some were, were just pros and some were amateurs. And so we went around and trying to just mess with the rules instead of just saying, listen, let's just make this thing open. Let's put the prize money up there and it may the best man win. Again, when I was in the middle of it, uh, I was thinking that there should be something different. And from from 68 on, there was. And it progressed and it got better, frankly, after that. 
was it a brave new world? I mean, was there a sense when you gathered in, well, those of you who went to Bournemouth or at least in Paris in 68, was there a sense that this is great? And did it feel like that on the tour for the first few months? It absolutely did. I remember Bournemouth and, uh, and the prose for the first time and, and, and the hullabaloo around it. And, yeah, it made a huge difference. And the, the, the fact that Wimbledon were on board really changed the whole thing because there wasn't any way that the rest of the majors were not going to go along with Wimbledon and ultimately they did. We had no official rankings in those days so how did you get into tournaments? By invitation. Basically if you did well at Wimbledon, here's what happened. We have this Wimbledon uh, players restaurant and in those days that was also the place that you made your deals with tournament organizers from around the world because they would come to Wimbledon they'd go up to the uh, the players restaurant they'd call you aside and say hey buddy I can give you $300 $400 if you come to Istanbul or to Beirut or to Austria or to Helversum or to a circuit in the United States that would last maybe four or five weeks that's how it worked so it was like a cattle market in the Wimbledon uh, restaurant yes well, cattle market is not really being fair to us gracious, good-looking tennis pros, but yes. But what about those players who perhaps were not so marketable but were as good or perhaps better than the players who might be marketable? Well, you had to win. I mean, if you weren't a winner, if you didn't uh, excel uh, in, in terms of doing well at Wimbledon or at the French before that and, and make a name for yourself or Davis Cup then you weren't going to get invitations to these tournaments of course it wasn't fair of course it wasn't but, and it's much fairer now where you have this computer that judges how good you are and has a number one to number 300 so were there occasions that you can remember when a player who really by any rational criteria deserved to be in a tournament was not because maybe he or she had said something out of place to the tournament director? Oh, I think that happened all the time. The tournament directors were just interested in trying to get the best field that they could, and they judged that by who were the most attractive people to watch play. And, and with those who had some success, of course. Look, if you didn't have a tournament in those days with, uh, with Roy Emerson or, or with Rod Laver or, or some of the, the great uh, players you struggled so they were the front runners and they've always been front runners in this in this game as you know so what were the incidents or the issues that led to the momentum for the foundation of the association of tennis professionals okay so we have to go back to six, the end of 67 when lamar hunt dave dixon signed these 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 the eight players called Ansomate. and they were going to try to promote the tennis in a different way. No more white clothes, colored clothing, yellow walls, etc. And um, that uh, is, I think, what gave the momentum for a change because there were already maybe eight or ten pros that were outside of the mainstream of tennis, playing professionally and making, making a living. And then when another eight got signed, I think that is when the... Uh, the amateur game realized that, that the gig was up because you weren't going to be able to present Wimbledon as the greatest tournament without 24 of the best players in the world. That's what changed. And then 
we had this period where WCT signed on for a certain period of the year for the first four months, and then the Grand Prix had the last eight months. That didn't last that long, but that was there for a moment in history. And then uh, when, it became, when it became all open, uh, that's, that's when everything changed. That's when everybody and their brother was walking around with tennis rackets in airports, and, and there was a huge boom in the sport internationally. And what then led to the foundation of what was effectively a player trade union? Well, it wasn't, I, I would not agree with that characterization because uh, it wasn't really a trade union. It, it ended up becoming more like the PGA Golf Tour, which was where the, the tournaments were owned by the, by the, by the association. Um, but w- what happened was that we were sort of in this limbo period where you had WCT that had a section of the year, then you had another section of the year. And um, as things were progressing, it became clearer to those of us who were sort of in the front lines or, or as players that there had to be more player input into the tournaments, the circuits, the rules, and everything. And uh, that that's why we, we changed things. That's why we formed the association to have a say, basically. And that was a say with the tournament organisers, or was that a say with the ILTF, or was, uh, I mean, the administration of tennis was sort of a a real patchwork in those days. Yeah, so it was to have a say in all of those things. And as it turned out, you know, the, the, in those days, ILTF, now ITF, when uh, 1972, three rolled around, had this this nonsense about Nicky Pillich and, and uh, the not being able to play in a professional tournament because he was required to play Davis Cup, which the rest of us who had been pro for a few years, not that long, but were beginning to get our, our feet on the ground in terms of what it meant, we weren't going to... Uh, we weren't going to go back to the national associations and under the control of the ITF. We were not going to do that, and that's why the whole thing happened with the walkout at Wimbledon, which is what changed everything. I'll come back to that in a second, but in terms of the um, the founding of the association, Jack Kramer played a very important role in this. Yes. What was his motivation? Because obviously he was associated with the Pro Tours. I think he uh, his was a genuine interest in seeing what I think he had always dreamt of happening and what I think he thought and knew was eventually going to happen was that the players were going to have a major say and be a major part of it and that the game was going to go open. And he wanted it to go open in a way that, uh, that as you said earlier, the, you know, the, the, these were amateur officials that were running it and I think he wanted to have this whole this whole world be more professional, which is what we all wanted and which is what ultimately happened. So let's go back to the, the, the Wimbledon boycott. I mean, in many ways, a new association, if you have a battleground, you can show your muscle. Was that in anybody's mind or were you actually dead set on trying to diffuse a, a really quite unfortunate situation? No, we wanted... Uh, we were showing a muscle. Of course, that's exactly what we were doing. We were saying, listen, you cannot, we are not going to go back into the days where the ITF can tell you where you can play and where you cannot play. It was very simple. It wasn't, uh, it, it, it was very easy to understand. The Yugoslav Federation, go to the ITF 
and the and they say ban Nicky Pillage because he won't play Davis Cup. The ITF go to Wimbledon and say please go along with our ban of Nicky Pillage because he's not going to play Davis Cup. And to my way of thinking, it was simple. We're not going to go back to the days where the ITF can, through a national association, require players from that national association to do certain things. Just we're not going to go back. The Australian Federation did it. In fact, every federation had the power to do it. Now the question was whether we were going to let them continue to use that power to, at the, uh, to, 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 uh, you know, to hurt the players' ability to earn a living. There were a number of press conferences in London um, where you had to sit and face a very angry media um, with the players very much painted as the villains in all this because Wimbledon is very much part of the British social as well as sporting scene. To what extent did you feel that you were the villain uh, of the piece, however convinced you may have been of the role you were playing. It didn't bother me if I was the villain. In fact, I think my relationship with the press generally, because in those days we used to have a beer with the press after after the matches were over, and we were personally, at least I was personally, close with a lot of the guys or oh, the, the press room. Not for any ulterior motive. It just was. It is what it is because it's not like today where players live in a cocoon. And once the match is over, their, their cocoon moves away. In those days, we really had a, some close relationships with people who were in the media business. I didn't feel... Um, it, it really didn't bother me. I was so convinced that what we were doing was the right thing and that eventually, 10 days after the, the Wimbledon was over, it became clear that that the ITF was going to buckle and was going to say, listen, the players do need to be part of the decision-making process, and that's exactly what happened. And um, what happened was Wimbledon that year apparently had great crowds and everything was fine, but everybody knew that the die was cast and that there was... Even to this day, I have the sense that those who have a historical perspective on this whole thing look back on it and say, you know the players' power continues to sort of rest on the idea that what happened in seven could happen again. So I don't think it will. I hope it doesn't, because I think that was a unique moment in the history of tennis. But, but I think that that still sort of lingers. So you think the threat of a potential Wimbledon boycott again, because it's been rumoured about the Australian Open a couple of years back, whether the players might boycott that. What's in their contracts with their sponsors and their racket companies? Who knows? But... Um, you still think the threat of a, of a boycott um, is a factor, even if it would never be implemented? No, I don't think it's going to happen again, but, but I think the threat that we pose by walking out then probably continues to be there. And look, I understand about all the racket contracts and shoe contracts and all of that, because we had the same issue then. It was at a much lower level, and the numbers were staggeringly lower than what they are now. But they were the same. Nobody wanted to walk out of Wimbledon. Or you, nobody would have. I mean, nobody wanted to. But we all, the, 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 the whole program was very carefully and concisely explained to the players. And there was not one of the players, whether they were contract professionals or sort of in another category or amateur, didn't realize what we were doing and were not 100% in favor of it. At what point did you get the sense, we've won this battle? The week off, the, the the day after Wimbledon finished. I mean, there was uh, there was, as you said, we were demons, and we demonized. We were demonized, I suppose, as an association. Um, 
you couldn't really say rich, spoiled players because we weren't rich or spoiled at that stage. But uh, you, you gentlemen in the press found, found your way. Or I'm not saying you were or were not part of it, but the British press, they certainly, as you said, is part of the English summer sporting tradition, this great championship. And to challenge it like that was, was just not in the cards. I never felt, uh, I, I never had any misgivings or second thoughts or anything like that. Do you feel that the solution with the founding of the um, Pro Council, the MIPTC, was actually a good outcome from your efforts or was it slightly fudged? I thought it was a good outcome. It was, it, it, it was a good avenue to, it basically gave the power of the, 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 the sporting, the tennis world to the nine people who, who were uh, part of that thing. Some of them were ITF people, some of them were tournament directors, and there were three players. Now, it wasn't probably the representation that we wanted, and we would probably have asked for more, but for then, it was a good, it was a good stepping stone to what eventually happened. The next step, or perhaps the last step in the revolution, was when the Association of Tennis Professionals formed itself into the ATP Tour, the announcement in 88, with effect from the 1st of January 1990. Do you see that as completing the process, or do you see that as a totally separate development? No, that was completing the process. That was definitely, that was definitely the discussion. Uh, the discussion was really whether the ATP would be a union or the ATP would be more like the PGA Golf Tour. And this was the, this was the latter of the two. The, the ATP decided, and that started even before the uh, dissolution of the MIPTC and the, and the, and the formation of the ATP Tour, um, that we were going to be uh, like the PGA Tour. So we'd, we have ownership of tournaments and, and, and a, a lot of input into the tour outside of the majors. But uh, these shenanigans in tennis for over the years and all these years that we've been talking about, none of them really hurt. They just, the, the game just kept sort of limping along and getting better and better. And in general, at the highest level, tennis is extremely healthy. When you look back on the period of 72, 73 in particular, what particular memories or impressions stand out for you? I can't tell you that I have memories that, that I was not like an intellectual who was sitting down there and figuring out where things were going to be in 20 years' time. I really wasn't. I was just dealing with the issues that we had on the table and at that time. And they, they kept coming fast and furious. And I kind of liked WCT because they were professional, they knew what they were doing, they had a, a clear vision for the way that things could go in the future. And then there was this other Grand Prix that was going and that Jack Kramer was also very much a part of and he, um, he understood and he was very professional. So for us, this was a fight where we were in the middle of, which we eventually changed, but we were in the middle of it and it wasn't hurting any of us players. And how did you, as a tennis player from South Africa, end up in the hot seat? It wasn't a hot seat. It was a leadership role that, that I was very comfortable with um, and I was just president for the first two years and stayed on and we tried to uh, you know, help where I could. 
but uh, there was no hot seat for me. It, it was a labor of love. It truly was. It was to me, I thought that what we were doing was, at the time, important. And you say you weren't conscious of trying to build something for the next 20 years, but were there ever moments, the way we say, oh, well, when we look back on this in 50 years' time, did you ever have moments like that, given that the ATP is now 50? I would like to say that, yeah, it was like, uh, you know, that I, I had this vision and that things have turned out exactly like like I wished they had. But there are other issues that are on the table now and there's things are still sort of, uh, you know, gurgling around there that... Uh, I don't think tennis is perfectly well organized now. I do think that the entire um, landscape of professional tennis could, could be well served by a, a more... Uh, a robust uh, interest in the television packaging as it is done. At the moment, it's all like a hodgepodge. You know, the ATP have got their their television package. Each Grand Slam is is the ones that are really going to going to town and to the bank for, on the television side of things. And I think that uh, that should. Uh, be under the control more of an organization that stands above this whole sport. And when you see today's professional tennis, are you proud of the part you played in it? Yes. Yes. That was the ATP's first president, Cliff Drysdale, 50 years on from the formation of the ATP. And if you've enjoyed this interview, why not check out the ATP website, where you'll be able to find details of the ATP's new strategic plan, One Vision, outlining Chairman Andrea Gaudenzi's vision for the game and the ATP's role in its development over the coming years. I'm Chris Bowers. Thanks for listening.